Hello, everyone. My name is Derek, and this week we have on a very exciting episode of I Pledge Allegiance. We're going to be talking about MEV within the context of osmosis. MEV is something that has been on the top of everyone's radar for really the past year. Between Ethereum and, and other chains like Cosmos, it's a theme that a lot of people have their eye on, and the landscape has changed a lot in the last I would say, year to two years in terms of the different approaches and the different design decisions. I think Flashbots was very early and pioneered certain things. But in 2023, like, you can take a step back and, and analyze a few different approaches and, and different philosophies even. In today's podcast, we're going to be getting really into the philosophy of how one chain, Osmosis, has decided to, to address and handle MEV. And we'll talk a little bit about the specific approaches and the trade-offs made here, but also talking about the future. I think, again, Osmosis is a really interesting case study because, again, a lot of the, the original philosophy and design decisions have been made with MEV in mind. So, and I have on Barry from Skip and Dave from Osmosis, two of the most knowledgeable folks about MEV I know. So really excited to get things started without further ado, welcome Dave and Barry. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for us on. I guess jumping right into it, Dave, first question's for you. I've spoken a lot to you and Sunny about this. MEV is something you both have been interested in for a long time. My understanding is that it played into the early philosophy and creation of osmosis. You guys were very interested in threshold decryption and, and eventually began working on this decentralized exchange. So could you just talk a little bit about that journey and, and sort of your personal experience with MEV? Yeah. So in a way, Osmosis started with Sunny and I, I two years ago. Osmosis started as a joint project between Sika, which is MEV and Sunny I'm part of, and Chainopsis, some people who make like the main wallet of Cosmos. And Sunny and I were really looking to MEV problem in Ethereum and trying to ask, how can we best eliminate this? And something that really struck out to us was that it seems mostly eliminatable. Like sandwiching seems like a mempool or blockchain is not giving you the guarantee you need, namely that you have privacy until your action is finalized or committed to. And then like after trying to survey solutions to fix this, we realized that, okay, we can hide a lot of this via threshold decryption and we can actually fix a lot of these MEV problems by decentralizing them more. Like similar to how in proof of stake, a lot of our security comes from, you know, you have to break one third or two thirds of validators to do something bad, which should be able to do something similar with MEV. Uh, by default, things are safe and you only get issues if you can corrupt simultaneously very large percentages of the validator set. So we started off with thinking threshold decryption as a way to eliminate sandwiching. A lot of like these mempool attacks where you see someone does something that's profitable, so you just copy it without actually having to do anything yourself. Then it's over time evolved into other aspects like, oh, in an app chain setting, it makes a lot of sense to just batch your trades together. Maybe it makes sense to auction higher spots in, or your first spot in a block, etc. Yeah, so then the way I was supposed to start it then was we were working on threshold decryption and thinking about this other thing and like on-chain privacy. And then Chaps is working on Osmosis, this like Cosmos AMM chain. And then we just decided to join forces to make Osmosis. Got it. Super interesting. And Barry, could you just provide a little bit of background on 
and how Skip was started and, and how you guys decided to venture into the MEV space. Yeah. So we got started last year in 2022. And prior to that, my co-founder and I had been doing a lot of searching in Ethereum on mainnet. We were heavy users of Flashbots there and doing all sorts of different things from traditional Dex, ARB, and NFT ARB to some weirder stuff that turned out to be not so profitable. But we did that for, I don't know, maybe six months or so. And in the course of doing that, we got, it sounds like maybe similar to Dave, like kind of disillusioned with the direction that MEV was headed on Ethereum. And and we thought that there could be alternative approaches to how we handled MEV. So, so Flashbots in the Ethereum community and, and a lot of the researchers there popularized this narrative around accelerationism and sort of maximal extraction all the time and maximum reordering to facilitate maximum extraction and basically all MEV for everyone. And that was the idea. And we thought that a lot of that stuff was pretty harmful for user experience, especially some of the things around traders exploiting information about other traders unconfirmed trades in terms of front running and sandwiching. And we also thought that it didn't really align with what we thought developers really wanted, which is what surprised us. Like we saw on one hand, the infrastructure moving in this direction of saying, okay, we have to have a ton of MEV. And we saw Dex developers and app chain developers going in the other direction saying, okay, like how can we build systems to have better protocols to prevent more of this? And we were like, okay, well, what if we set out to build a different kind of MEV infrastructure and protocol company that could actually be very receptive to these kinds of things that took as its first principle, this notion that app chain developers or role of developers or protocol developers would want to control their block space and order flow markets and that they had preferences and the communities around them had preferences that they wanted to express. And those preferences could be more complex than, okay, let's accelerate to a dystopian future or we have to have perfect fair order. Because we saw both of those extremes as probably untenable and probably not really what chains wanted. And as we went down the journey, I'm sure we'll talk about this, like we did find that people had you know, more specific, more interesting preferences that we could build better protocols around. And the Osmosis team and the Osmosis community was one example of that, where sort of, as Dave was saying, some forms of MEV, they also, like us, I think, view as unnecessary. And other forms, things like backrunning, certain things that are maybe unavoidable, they view potentially as sources of, of protocol revenue. So there was this like giant design space out there, which is like, okay, here's a weird, like interesting thing about blockchains. And let's like, try to take a nuanced approach with dealing with it that can give our application developers more tools in their tool belt. Now, that was really the, the original idea behind Skip. And we've been fortunate that Osmosis and Sunny and Dave have a lot of related ideas. Just a quick follow-up to that. And this is for you, Barry, or Dave, feel free to chime in. Like, like could you speak a bit more about the Ethereum philosophy and, and how they approached MEV? And like why maybe that was a frustrating set of design decisions. Yeah, I think Barry hinted at it a little bit, but then uh, I feel like two years ago and up until a bit recently, the ETH philosophy was really about democratizing extraction MEV from the users. So like 
don't let miners get an advantage. Let's take this opportunity, this revenue from users, more widespread. So now anyone can at home do it instead of it just being who can partner with miners the best. But this is a very frustrating take because like our goal should be eliminating this. It's easy to just give the example to see that sandwiching is bad. And so I think this also drove a lot of like trying to improve upon this in a new app chain setting where we can like have much more control where Flashbox is also limited in the sense, or in ETH, it's limited in the sense of they have to like do what can be done within the realm of today's ETH protocol. I do think ETH has been changing a bit since there was the tornado cash ban right around the merge. Because after that, I feel like we've finally been seeing people talk about censorship and like stake centralization and as like this core bad things in ETH and seeing more and more pressures to start decentralizing block proposals. Like there's a variety of ETH research posts trying to like do a kind of equivalent of what we call joint proposals in Cosmos. Yeah, and just to follow up with that, I mean like the community there in some ways like has their hands tied in a way that Cosmos app chains don't really. Like Ethereum secures massive, massive amounts of money compared to Cosmos chains individually and and also like has massive ecosystems built on top of it in terms of all sorts of different kinds of L2s. And so there's a much higher barrier to making any kind of change there. And I think like so much of, as Dave was was implying, like so much of how we can better address MEV actually has to do with like changing the protocol to introduce potentially new kinds of transactions that can be MEV aware, like meta transactions that can bundle multiple transactions or having new kinds of cryptographic primitives and encryption or having less authority in a single proposer. We can talk about what PBS is and sort of how those kinds of things affect MEV if that's helpful later. But I I think like the core thing that we believe is that the protocol partially because the protocol has all these levers, but also partially just because like sovereignty is important. The protocol is like a stakeholder in the MEV supply chain. So then we think about things from the perspective of how can we make our protocols more MEV aware? Whereas I think in Ethereum, just because they have to move so much more slowly and so much more more carefully, they sort of have to take like the protocol as a given and then like build everything around that. And so I you know, I don't mean to imply that like the choices they've made are dumb. I think they like make sense for the local optima that they're in. But I, I think like this is one of the exciting things about app chains is that like we have access to all of these other tools. Yeah, it's a similar dynamic. Feels like a similar dynamic to something like Ethereum liquid staking design, right? Which is the lack of built-in delegation has resulted in a specific emergence of Lido and having huge amount of utility for Ethereum. But again, some people feel strongly that it could be negative in the long run, but it's limited to an initial protocol decision and Ethereum's too big to make otherwise at this point. But I do think it, it's really interesting to bear, you mentioned like the MEV supply chain or, or value chain. I feel like, I don't know if you guys read this guy, Ben Thompson's Stratechery blog, but I feel like he would have a field day just diving into the dynamics of the marketplace here. Of It's really interesting to think about who has the leverage and, and power in, in these different ecosystems and, and how that changes over time. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to hear Dave's thoughts about who he thinks has power. I'll comment afterwards. Power on like, staking derivatives? 
I think with regards to MEV. So I, I do think that protocols have a huge amount of power here where depends where you think users come from or like what's the stickiness. Like do users use Ethereum because like they particularly like Ethereum or do they use Ethereum because the app they want to use happens to be on Ethereum? And if you believe the latter, then the protocol, the, like these apps do have strong power here of if they want to enforce some change, they have this option of just going to be their own app chain. So I think it's like cool to see that DYDX like did this. Well, they probably had a variety of reasons for it, but one offshoot of this is getting their own app chain to give them better decentralization properties and more MEV control. Well, in their case, though, there was like effectively single sequencer before. So just having a validator sets maybe the big win. I also feel surprised that Geth implementation and general these ETH mempools have been too neutral, where like the sense of like neutrality is incredibly important, especially as you're trying to be a generic L1. But I think there's also a claim of, look, there's like hundreds of millions lost to this one attack. Surely we could just implement some Appleware fixes to try to mitigate this one thing in the mempool. Like for, so for instance, you could likely detect some subset of like sandwiching attacks in a mempool and say that, okay, by default, just don't propose blocks like this. And today's is no longer that helpful, especially how the block production market has shifted. But I think two years ago, this was a valid candidate that could be in the running. Or trying to build more ad hoc protocols in the mempool layer, similar to how like Bitcoin does. Look, Bitcoin doesn't do it for MEV, they do it for scaling. Because at Bitcoin, the protocol is so fixed that all they, what they spend most of their time doing is hyper-optimizing the existing protocol in very cool ways. It surprised me that ETH like, node implementations didn't start going that direction. Yeah, I think like the thing that's like interesting about the supply chain in Ethereum, right, is when a lot of MEV researchers like talk about it, they have something where they say, okay, like MEV originates with the user and then you have like the wallet as part of the supply chain and then you have searchers who are trying to extract MEV from those users and maybe there's like an order flow marketplace where they can like buy information about user transactions. And maybe some of the MEV goes back to the user as well that way. And then you have these off-chain builders that do sophisticated simulations and try to build a block that extracts as much MEV as possible. They give that block to like a relayer and then the relayer has a relationship with like one validator, one proposer who proposes the next block and the proposer's job is just okay i'm gonna select the block that has the most mev extracted because that's gonna be the one that pays me the most so there's this like very complex industrial pipeline of like taking a transaction and trying to squeeze all of the juice out of it as possible and the thing that we've always thought is interesting about that right is that notably like the protocol is not the end of the supply chain it's like the proposer and we always thought that that was weird because it kind of implies that it's not really possible for us to make protocol or consensus level decisions that internalize or recapture MEV. It's like there's like some fixed amount of MEV out there that just exists and the supply chain is just figuring out like <laughs> how to divide it up between all of these different parties as opposed to like making protocol level choices that can affect one, you know, how much MEV actually leaks out and two, like who has the power to capture it. So, you know, going back to the simple case, if you think about that supply chain, it's really hyper-optimized to give the proposer all of the power, right? It's basically designed to do two things. Like one is 
commoditize validators. So validators don't have to do any meaningful or difficult or sophisticated work. All they do is they ask a relayer, hey, like, what is the block that is going to pay me the most MUV? Or what are a couple of different blocks? And then I'm just going to like pick the highest one. And that's, that's all I do. And I do that. And then I gossip blocks to the network and I validate straight transition functions, but I don't have to do anything else. I am not involved in the MEV supply chain, except as like the thing that's like consuming all of the MEV at the end of it. And the second thing I think it's optimized for is to transfer as much revenue as possible to the proposer each block. I think this is, and this is like the whole point of their supply chain. It is like entirely oriented around this idea of make the proposer as dumb as possible and give the proposer as much money as possible. And then no validator can get an advantage over any other validator in extracting MEV if you do that. But all of that is taking the protocol as fixed, which we absolutely don't have to do in Cosmos, right? And there are interesting ways that you can change consensus and add new rules into consensus that affect this power dynamic, right? That maybe result in MEV accruing to other stakeholders or result in certain kinds of MEV being eliminated or being entirely recaptured. And that's, I think, like the really interesting part of the design space to explore because it's the part of the design space that like these other communities don't get to explore. And I think it's also the part that's like most coupled to user experience. So the, the end goal here is like use MEV as a way to make UX better or at least like <laughs> design your protocols in a way that doesn't make UX like <laughs> much worse, which I think is the default, right? You want a user experience where people don't get screwed into having worse execution prices. And that's what a lot of threshold encryption is about. You can't get like sandwiched and end up paying way more for something than you thought you were going to. And you want a consistent UX. And everything else I think is downstream of that. One thing though that like we think about is Oftentimes, when you are working with these questions of mechanism design and protocol design, certain things that you intend to have strictly positive consequences can like echo across the supply chain and do unexpected things. I like come from a public policy background way back in the day, and this is something that economists and public policy folks think about a lot is that Oftentimes, when you like make what you believe to be a simple change in the law, it affects people's incentives in ways that are super unexpected, that then can lead to having worse, not better consequences. So like a classic example of this is in the US, there are lots of places that implement like three strikes laws, which they're basically these things where when you have three felony convictions, it matters a lot less what the third one is, you're going to get an extremely harsh punishment, something like 20 plus years or life in prison. And the original idea behind this was, okay, well, you know, if we give people worse punishments, they're less likely to do crime, <laughs> which is like a pretty straightforward thing to believe. But what some folks actually found out is that when they were looking at you know, very small districts that implemented these three strikes laws, they found that the murder rate went up in those areas. And the reason for that, nobody like really knows the reason for that, but they were able to show like with a really, really high confidence that it was causal. And it's probably because like, okay, if I know I'm going to get <laughs> a ton of time in prison, no matter what for my third crime, I'm much more incentivized to like 
kill the witnesses for my third crime than I would have been otherwise. And so a lot of robberies became violent robberies. And so this is like kind of one of the things we need to think about when we're designing MEV mechanisms is like, okay, if we're trying to like solve a problem in one area, we need to make sure that it doesn't like create other unexpected problems elsewhere. And so like with threshold encryption, for example, like one thing that we at Skip think about is once you have the mempool encrypted, it may be advantageous for users to be, and maybe this is fine, but it may be advantageous for users to like directly sell their unencrypted order flow to market makers who can trade on that information and who then become sort of very powerful off-chain actors and like arbiters of the relationship between the user and the chain. Not that it's not possible for them to do that today, but it may be the case that as a user, I can make you know some amount more in a world where otherwise my transaction is just encrypted and like executed, quote unquote, dumbly, right? And so we always think about this, like what are the ways that like MEV and protocol decisions can echo? Because we are in a very unexplored part of the design space or we're, we're especially about to be threshold encryption and other cool shit like that. Proto-Revin is, is an example of this. So we can talk about that more later. Not to say that MEV is like murder, but <laughs> it's an interesting way to think about the problem. Yeah, it's like lots of examples are kind of like remaking pay for order flow semantics, which in the supply chain setting would perhaps be wallet trying to extract more profit or I guess maybe directly the user using the wallet. Do you find that this MEV supply chain that's developed is natural? Like something I found odd is just the amount of soft power it feels that searchers have. And I guess something that L2s, a lot of the L2s in ETH are, are fixing is like, is getting proposers to do more work or taking at least some of the profit back from proposers. I guess like Optimism's Miva is like do an auction for, for the entire block proposal. And so that way the protocol gets some of the profit. But it's still not clear to me of why would app chains, or it feels like app chains should be doing so much more. And like this, we're really in this local maxima in today. And like, yeah, I mean, I agree for what it's worth. Like, I think a lot of, there's like very simple things we can do, right? And I think you can like think about making them more complex over time. But I think like ProtoRev is a good example of something very simple, which is, okay, here's some MEV that exists just because users are trading on osmosis. We can like measure it based on data on osmosis. And we don't actually need like, we don't actually need off-chain actors to do that. Like the space is simple enough that the protocol itself can be responsible for the computation. And then there's all sorts of for, for capturing. And there's all sorts of like nice things you get out of that, right? Like if the protocol is doing it, then the protocol and the community decides where the revenue goes. If the protocol is doing it, then the code is open sourced and audited and can be improved and discussed in public. And we can have like open conversations about the trade-offs. And then that money doesn't just like leak out partially to searchers, but also just like to AWS, right? And like the other cloud providers that the searchers are using because they're competing with each other. <laughs> it's like MEV, like who is the biggest winner in MEV if you don't have auctions and you don't have intelligent protocols? Like probably Bezos, right? <laughs> um, and so like, I think that's like a nice, simple thing. And then I think like there's other cooler shit that we could be doing too. Like a lot of stuff around these multi-proposer consensus algorithms we're very interested in. Like... Narwhal and Tusk, for example, and like the DAG-based mempools and anything you can do that sort of undermines any one actor's ability to dictate what's going to happen in a block. And there's, there's things around that. 
I think there's like other stuff around just adding new predicates that blocks have to satisfy and the network being like, nope, sorry, that's not a valid block. For example, after Osmosis has threshold encryption, like we can say, okay, every block, like what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that at the end of the block, there are global clearing prices and that there is a no ARB condition or at the start of the next block or whatever it might be. And if we don't have that, we're not going to accept the block. And then you can have the validator do the work. It's very simple work to figure out how prices should be rebalanced across the decks. And, and so like, to your point, Dev, there's like a lot of really cool creative stuff that we can do. And I think we're just very beginning to scratch the surface now. Yeah, I really feel like the way is we're going to get proposers to do a lot more work and then submit a proof of like correctness in their block proposal. I mean, in some sense, the easiest case to see this is ZK rollups or these chains where your block proposer makes a snark proof of correctness and then it just includes state diff and a proof. It's much faster because no one has to actually do any CPU compute, just verify a snark proof. But we can see this also in a lot more places, like, as you said, like clearing all ARBs, or if there's some auction that's like some NP-complete problem to perfectly clear, you can at least do a proof of here is this like approximation I did, and here's a proof that it's within delta close to the optimal, just basically how you do all formal analysis of trying to solve NP-complete problems. If you don't actually solve the full thing, that's too hard. You just get within some approximation of the current results and prove that it's sufficiently approximated. Yeah, I think this direction in particular, this is something Dave and I have always both thought is like really cool, is just now being unlocked by ABCI++. Because at the moment, like Tendermint, or the application is very dumb about what happens in Tendermint, and Tendermint is very dumb about what happens in the application. But like the brilliance of prepare and process proposals, it can capture exactly this notion that like, there is some canonical work that we want the proposer to do. And then we don't want everyone to have to do it. But we want maybe some kind of verification of the block that the proposer has done that work. And that can happen in process proposal. And so I think part of why we're just like at this very nascent stage is that up to this point, like the natural developer facing primitives didn't really exist. And now they're coming into ex- existence around those pieces. And then like, I've always felt like vote extensions is like a super elegant way to try to have effectively like more collaborative block building to basically undermine the ability of the proposer, the center in his leader based election to entirely construct the block by themselves or and it gives the other validators opportunities to inject transactions and data into the block. And the browser has to include their transactions and data. And so then we can do things like have credible auctions that the proposer runs so that they can't just like censor all of the bids or the participants. And I think there's a lot of cooler shit in that direction that we can explore too. And I think in my mind, there's like a couple of final technical blockers around ABCI++, but then you're going to see like a big explosion of people trying a bunch of cool things here. And hopefully Skip is a part of that for a lot of different shades. But I think there is thematically going to be this movement towards like, hey, come to X or Y DEX or lending protocol, you know, stake with us or LP with us. And because of the cool shit that we do with consensus, you're going to have better ability to recapture the MEV that you and our users create than you would in Ethereum. And if MEV is like really as much revenue as the Ethereum people are convinced that it is, then that's going to be a meaningful like leg up UX advantage for these Cosmos chains like Osmosis and Mars and Duality and all these others who are thinking about it. 
I usually echo this. I think we're also in an explosion of just different experiments happening once photo extensions land. And what's cool about those, what I'm really hoping happens is we get a lot of people trying things we haven't thought of yet and just seeing what works, what doesn't. Like, I think it's maybe one of the great things with ETH DeFi and how easy it is to spin up a new protocol is that we just see empirically what does well, what doesn't. And we'll probably have this larger solar dynamic with how we construct these auctions. Whereas I feel like MEV experiments today have gone way too monolithic. Of It's hard to tie your whole alt L2 into one experiment, but it's not as hard to tie like you just your app. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all very bullish for Cosmos, I think. <laughs> I think the other thing is some of this stuff does carry risk, especially when you're talking about like consensus level changes to protocols. And so you want to be obviously still very careful about a lot of it. Like, I think one reason that we're trying to bake so much of what we do into ABCI++ and vote extensions and trying to leverage other existing consensus protocols, Narwhal, Tusk, those kinds of things, is that they have been formally verified. There are not just us, but like large teams of consensus researchers behind these things who are thinking about them. And so like, even though Sonny or Dave as app chain developers can move quickly, they're still like relying on very sound fundamental research, which is important. And I think it's like important not to forget that and to make sure that like, as we are doing this kind of development, we're moving quickly, but we're also making sure, okay, if another chain is going to bridge with this new chain doing something super weird around MEV and having a new approach to consensus, then we're going to make sure that that consensus algorithm that we're, they're using is trusted and like the funds are safe and so forth. I think another thing that's like kind of interesting to think about with MEV is a lot of people think about it as just like transaction ordering and inclusion. But I think, Dave, you've often said to me like that you think a lot of this boils down to just having better cryptographic primitives. And I'm curious kind of what you mean by that and like what you're particularly excited about. So I don't think it's wrong that most things go down to ordering and inclusion rights. But I think it's maybe in some sense, and it probably is a helpful abstraction, but you do have other tools for dealing with or inclusion. Like one is all joint proposal work or Narwhal style tricks of having everyone be able to contribute to inclusion. Then a second is for ordering. Like a big thing we should be thinking about is that blocks are discrete. We don't have continuous time in blockchains, so we should stop trying to remake this. If there's many trades in a block, as far as it's possible to do so, we should try to batch them all together to get one common clearing price. And whenever things aren't possible, I think there should be some aren't possible to batch. We should be thinking about ways to make this, the actual ordering, less controllable by any single participant. So one idea is just randomize it. For whatever data can't be batched, randomize the ordering, and then execute under, under the random order. And as long as you have like threshold randomness, then no entity would know, know the whole thing. Just the problem you do get there is then you might have incentivized spamming. But I do think we can like abstractly handle a lot of these ordering problems via bashing or like alternative auction design. Like it's also not super clear that the market primitives we tend to express right now are optimal in the sense that 
like, why do you have so many market makers? Well, person A wants to like buy at time T, person B wants to sell at time T plus one. And the market maker's job is basically to just guess that these two people will exist and provide liquidity for both of them. But what if we could provide just better primitives for person A and person B to like maybe handle their actual time cadence better of like, if someone places a limit order, how much do they care about instant execution versus just it generically being executed at the correct price? Like, so then you, you wouldn't need, so for instance, if you had most orders be dollar cost averaged over time, maybe you don't need as much market makers in your system. That's not really a cryptographic thing, but. No, I mean, I think it's like an interesting direction though. It's kind of like a lot of what we do today in terms of like transaction execution is very imperative, right? We are saying what we want the protocol to do instead of describing the end state that we want to have, right? We say, okay, I'm going to create a message that is going to trade specifically against this one uni v2 pool or this particular route of three pools, or I'm going to trade against this concentrated liquidity pool. And I'm going, I want my transaction to like fail if the price gets above this particular slippage. It's very like over-specified in some way, as opposed to being actually like declarative statements of like our preferences over the end state, right? Instead of saying, okay, here's how I want my trade to happen. We could say, I just want to end up with 10 Osmo. I don't care how I get 10 Osmo. Like we can have off-chain people. We can have on-chain people. We can have different kinds of pools. Like somehow I want 10 Osmo and that's all I care about. Or maybe it's, I want 10 Osmo and I'm willing to give up this much, you know, like go off like through the lands of the interchain and deliver me that outcome. And whoever does, I'll pay something. I think there's lots of things in this direction of we are leaking value because we are over specifying things that users like don't actually care about and under specifying like the outcomes that they do care about. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think this is a spot on point. Like we should be having users, I guess to borrow Noah's terminology, is like express their intent of like what is the end result you want instead of just describing the process of getting it because all the processes of getting it are going to be suboptimal if you're like with limited client-side compute. Something I wonder is, yeah, to what extent is this, should all of this be, yeah, how's this going to pan out across the interchain and different like asynchrony primitives? Like all in one chain is maybe, it's simply easier to reason about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We think a lot about this and I don't really have the answers. I mean, I think a lot of people think cross-chain atomicity is this like big, sexy primitive. And I think in some ways it is. I think you know, there are interesting things you can do when you have cross-chain atomicity, especially if you have like atomic inclusion as opposed to maybe atomic execution. But you can settle ARBs on different chains at the same time and don't need to manage liquidity on all of those different chains. So then cross-chain arbitrage doesn't become a centralizing force and it becomes something that everybody has access to as long as there's good flash loan providers and you can have interchain flash loans and all of this is like really cool. And I think the flip is anything that gives you atomic execution or even atomic inclusion, but it's a little bit less true, requires like a pretty high degree of social coordination. And the question is always like, okay, how much are you getting and, and what are you giving up when you are trying to coordinate your chain with another chain? And I think this is especially important in the context of 
Cosmos app chains because Osmosis and Neutron are still going to have sovereign preferences around what goes into their block and the predicates that their block satisfy, like this no arb condition, for example. And so any kind of coordination mechanism that you build still needs to treat the protocol as a given, right? It's still respectful of like the sovereignty of the participant chains, and it can add value to those chains by enabling them to coordinate when it is economically advantageous for both of them to do so. And I think like the scheduler is like one potential primitive in this direction that the Atom 2.0 white paper explored that we think is pretty interesting. There are a bunch of others. Yeah, like something I've been thinking about from like reading so a lot of auction theory papers is that another option, alternative to atomicity, is that you could have an auction with an unclear end time. So for instance, I was reading this paper that was trying to make an OTC system where you know people put bids for stuff and then the person who's clearing it can get a profit. And one of the problems you get is that the OTC guy who's clearing stuff, if they do a fixed percentage, then uh, like I will take 1% of the spread as profit for me and give me the rest. Then people are incentivized to just try to incrementally keep changing their buy and sell prices because they don't want to overshoot. But then an alternative to fix this is you could have the percentage of profit taken by the operator or be randomized. So you can say that every block, here's this public process for how we choose our next percentage, and it's randomized. So maybe like at time t, it's 1%. Time t plus 1, it's like 2%. Time 3, it's half a percent. So it's constantly updating. So that way you're incentivized to tell them your true position or else risk someone else clearing it first. And I'm doing a bad job summarizing it, but I, I do wonder if things with unclear end times can help force like users or participants to put their true preferences on first. And and because of this rush to get data there as fast as possible, perhaps reduce some of the need for cross-chain synchrony. Like you don't want to just wait, you just want to go put your position immediately and just know that the collateral on the other side is claimable. Yeah, it's a super interesting idea. You'll have to send me the paper. I don't think you did a bad job of summarizing it. I think it's like wildly complicated. <laughs> the thing that Jack Samplin says that kind of resonates with me is like, the internet is asynchronous. And so like, we shouldn't, for the most part, necessarily view asynchrony between two totally separate and sovereign blockchains as a design limitation. We should also think of it as like, a design primitive that allows us to do cool things that you wouldn't be able to do if you were required to have synchronicity. And you can have better parallel processing of many different preferences and transactions and so forth and coordination across like small segments of state instead of coordination across, you know, the entire mempool or things like that. I do think there is still like a big area of coordination that I think is particularly interesting is around trying to have a layer that can coordinate the inputs to a block building process for multiple chains without fully replacing the block building process for those chains. So one thing that we think about a lot is if the proposer is running an auction to decide what transactions get included, what bundles to get included, which ones don't, you end up with this problem where they can kind of unilaterally rug the auction, right? They can just censor other transactions that they don't want to see in the block or something to that effect. And 
there's like broadly one class of solution to this that could work or would at least help is introducing like multi-proposer algorithms for consensus where the proposer need to take transactions from other validators, for example, through vote extensions or through something else. Narwhal is an example of this. And, and you have like a slightly more collaborative block building process. And so something that we think a lot about internally is like, okay, what if you had a separate chain that had an overlapping validator set with osmosis and neutron and a bunch of other places where that chain could just function as a basically like coming to consensus on inclusion for potential transactions in blocks. So all that chain does is it's very fast, very censorship resistant, and has a ton of throughput. It's not processing state at all. It's just making a bunch of transactions available to the proposer of these participant chains and to the other validators in their, in their validator set so that that proposer can run like a credible auction, the other validators can take a look at the transactions that are served up by that other layer and say, okay, did you do a good job of actually honoring the transactions that I can see were available to you when you were building your block? So I think like there is this spectrum of coordination and atomicity where on one end you have like fully atomic execution and success guarantees over transactions on different chains. And on the other end of it, you just have like atomic availability of transactions for different chains and like somewhere in the middle you have like atomic inclusion of transactions on blocks on different chains and and like on the one side it's like the most sovereign the other side maybe it's the least sovereign and like we think about like exploring this design space in a bunch of different ways but that's also a super interesting point what if we have this chain in the middle or we have all the same participants just agree on making inclusion commitments in this centralized way so I guess it reminds me of both as describing a space of solutions that captures both Starkware's roll-up approach and Celestia, where Starkware's roll-up approach is their single sequencer will just give you a commitment saying that, hey, I will include, you send your gospel transaction to them, they send you back a signed hash or something. It says that I will include this by time T. If I haven't, then like go post this on ETH L1 and get me slashed. Celestia is like, here, we're just going to run this entire alternate chain that's just going to be posting data, and then your job as a user of this is to just provably read data from it. And I guess what you described feels like a... Yeah, it captures both of these, where the former feels bad, the Starkware feels bad, because you're still actually vulnerable to the single sequencer just lying, like delaying the time before they give you equipment. And then the Celestia is like, you're giving up this fork choice rule in a subtle way. But if you're just requiring inclusion, not like this like client property. Yeah, you're requiring this for a block inclusion rather than your like clients must check this. This is a lot more appealing. Oh, I guess this also encapsulates the fair ordering protocols. I object to the name fair ordering. I think this is like scam marketing technique. But what I mean is like the class of things like Wendy, Equitas, and there's two other papers that I'm blanking on their names, where it's like, let's make this protocol in the mempool of like, everyone commits the timestamp they receive it and then we can ensure that block transactions are provided roughly at the sorted by network arrival time and i guess this like does encapsulate the space of all three or a wider space in all three of these that is exciting because we have this long-winded way of saying it. i think that was actually a really cool point of capturing all these going for whenever i can get dave to say something i've said is at least a cool point i feel like i'm on <laughs> i'm on track for something <laughs> Yeah, this is really exciting. Oh, I'll think about this more. <laughs> Good. Successful nerd snipe. Derek, we've been rambling for a while. 
<laughs> no, was there fine. anything you wanted to like redirect us to focusing on? Could you give like a quick summary of what ProtoRev is, how that came about and yeah, just like why it's something fundamentally new? Yeah. So the story behind it is kind of funny because I guess first, like what is ProtoRev? ProtoRev is a module that we have built for osmosis and, and built in collaboration with Dave and some of the folks on his team. So a couple of the skip engineering team, Jeremy and David, spent the last few months working on this. And I think, you know, barring comments from <laughs> from Dave, did a really extraordinary job kind of embedding in the osmosis team and making this come to life. And when you have a DEX and somebody trades on it, it imbalances the prices, right? So if I am an Osmo whale and all of a sudden I'm super bullish on, on Juno and I buy a ton of Juno, then I'm going to push the price of Juno way up on that pool and I'm going to make Osmo look comparatively cheap on that pool, right? So then there is, as long as Osmo and Juno are paired with other assets on the decks, there's an opportunity for somebody to buy some of the assets on pools where they are cheap comparatively, sell them on pools where they are expensive comparatively, and then make a riskless atomic profit just by trading around and pushing these prices to be back in line with one another. So that's what we call like having, and once there is no opportunity to make money doing that because the prices are so close together that with fees, you can't do it. We call that a no arb condition. So you have global clearing prices, right? So like the effective price of every asset compared to every other asset is, is the same. And no matter how, how you trade across the decks. And so the idea behind ProtoRev was what if instead of relying on searchers and other off-chain actors to do that work, what if instead the protocol did that? What if after every message that does a swap, we ran some code as a part of the protocol that looked at common arbitrage routes that included the pool that just got swapped against to see whether there are any opportunities for atomic riskless profit. And then if there are, the protocol can do really cool things. It can flash mint the tokens that are required to capture the ARB, then run those trades across the different pools, capture the profit, flash burn the tokens that it just flash minted, and then take the revenue or the profit and return that to the community pool and let the osmosis community decide what to do with it. So this is like a totally new approach to MEV recapture that has a lot of like really nice properties. So one is it's open source. So Dave and Sunny and all of the other osmosis contributors can look at it and audit it and make sure it works according to their expectations and the community can improve it and upgrade it over time. Two is it's a part of consensus. So like validators can't undermine it, right? They can't just decide, no, actually, like I want to capture that MEV. I'm not going to let the protocol capture it. Because if, if they don't run that piece of code, they're going to app hash out of consensus. And so it has like the same security properties as the chain itself, which is great. And in addition to those things, it's like fully governed, right? So off-chain mechanisms, off-chain actors, they can say, hey, look, like we're going to do what governance tells us. But in this case, like governance can literally update the revenue distribution themselves, 
and there is nothing that Skip or Sonny and Dave or anyone else can do about it. And I think that's like the most sovereign version of having an MEV capture system. And the story behind it is kind of interesting. Like we originally set out to build block space auctioning systems. And when we did that, we had built this off-chain system called Skip Select that we've now deployed to a bunch of other chains that basically coordinates with validators and searchers. Searchers submit bundles of transactions to it. We submit them to validators and, and they post those on chain. And we do nice things around simulation to make sure they succeed and make sure that we pick the highest paying bundles and so forth. And we went to Sonny and Dave and we said, hey, look, you know, we have this solution. It looks kind of like Flashbots, but it doesn't do sandwiching or front running. So like, we won't introduce the problems that you guys are worried about. And <laughs> Dave was kind of like, Absolutely not. No way. And I, and we were like, oh, this is very early on in our journey. And, and a lot of the other chains we were working with at the time really liked that solution because it gave them like the good MEV without the bad. And we were sort of scrambling because we were like, okay, well, we really want to work with Osmosis. But it sounds like from the perspective of their community and their developers, they don't want to see these kind of off-chain actors because for them, what's really important is ensuring that there's no like intermediary between the validators who could potentially threaten threshold encryption or something else. So we kind of went way back to the drawing board and we said, okay, like, what if instead of doing this with an off-chain system, we actually just contributed a solution directly into osmosis? And I think that was way more exciting for us and way more exciting for Sonny and Dave. But <laughs> there was a moment where they were like, nope, this is not it. <laughs> you guys are not doing this in the way that we want to see it done. But I think that ultimately was a very productive process for us. Yeah, I go on. I'm like super excited for Proto-Rip. I feel like this captures this space of ideas of things that are simple for the chain, like the chain should just do. Or, and, you know, extending further, eventually, you know, as things are more complex, so it's not something we can get like, every full node do, then it's the block proposer does it and everyone else verifies it. Yeah, I think like probably where Proto-Rev goes next immediately is... We can add, to Dave's point, just better ARB capture every block where we can have the proposer submit transactions that set global clearing prices and return ARB to the community treasury. We can have all the other validators just verify those using ABCI++, which is pretty cool. Because right now, the expectation is that ProtoRev will capture about 80% of available atomic ARB just based on us backtesting and having done a lot of analysis of what used to happen on osmosis. And we can, especially with threshold encryption, we can get that number like much closer to 100%. And then that's just like returns for osmos stakers, which is great. The other like high level direction that we're going in, and a lot of this is like inspired by our work with osmosis as, as well as duality is this notion of having protocol-owned builders, which is kind of a broad term that's designed to capture what we were talking about before, where you have the protocol actually as like an active participant in the MEV supply chain that can express preferences over the validity of its blocks to control basically two things. One is who accrues MEV. Is it stakers? Is it LPs? Is it the proposer, the validator set? Is it someone else entirely? And two, like, what kinds of MEV can be extracted, right? Do we have front running and sandwiching? Do we have atomic 
arbitrage? Do we have liquidations? Do we have something else entirely? And we can determine the validity of blocks based on what we see in those blocks related to MEV. And so the notion of protocol and builders is that this is up to the application itself and that you don't have this large, complex, off-chain supply chain that is trying to do this on behalf of the protocol, but that the protocol can sort of build blocks community communally and have certain predicates about those blocks enforced in consensus and that all of the block building logic is sort of open sourced and transparent, just like ProtoRev is, and that governance can decide where revenue accrues, just like they decide with ProtoRev, and that searchers can still have some of the things around bundling that they like to see, but that we can make sure that they are not harmful by moving them into the validator. In some sense, maybe it's like eliminating large swaths of searcher activity and moving them into the protocol, like where the validators are treated as a protocol participant, because we can explicitly reason about validator activity. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I'm, I'm curious, like, Dave, you guys are one of the biggest proponents of this approach. And I think some of the biggest influences on in our thinking on like, why we should think about alternatives to PBS. So I'm curious if you were to put things like into your words, like for the osmosis community, like why is this exciting for you all? Yeah, I think it's huge to get a lot of this MAV activity that persistently gives people worse UXs or like harms users. Like more the claim of searchers can help alleviate a lot of these problems if they're sufficiently aligned. Like for these arbitrage conditions, like you could just have someone clear the ARBs and benevolently give some of that back to users. But today, you don't because the searchers can also just take it for themselves. But now with ProtoRev, like, we can search for this class of MEV taken in the protocol of layer and then just directly distribute it back to a split amongst users and the protocol itself. So it's strictly better and the census algorithm always has, not census, like the state machine always has ability to tune this as it wants. What's nice is that we're not relying on any actor that's not controllable by the state machine. Like relying on arbitrary searchers is, feels like a very bad situation to be in. Whereas for today it's you know requiring on the phone uh, on like phone software, which is great in terms of reliability, not the best in terms of like just net CPU utilization, but still pretty good. And then you know later on it'll become validators or early block composers, which is extremely controllable, which is great. So for you guys, is it fair to say, maybe maybe this is an oversimplification, but it's like about deciding credibly as a part of the protocol, sort of who we rely on, who profits off of these kinds of mechanisms, and you know what do we allow them to do? Yeah, because if we let these unaligned actors be the ones controlling it, these searchers, then we'll never get the same user guarantee. And if the searchers go away, things can just get worse. But like we've added this centralizing force, or it feels to me as a centralizing force of like, why would we expect there to be many searchers? Why would it not be a winner take all market? Yeah. And that's a great point, actually. Like even, and this is one of the reasons that we think like at Skip that PBS at this time is overkill for most Cosmos chains, even for Osmosis, which is one of the most active ones, is that like, the individual markets for block building and searching on chains are not that big and they're not that complex. So what we see in practice in our auctions on other chains and what we saw in the data on osmosis from 
just historical cyclic ARBs is that usually there's like for every protocol or every like pair of protocols, there's like one searcher who just cleans up and takes basically all of the revenue. Like if you look at satellite.skip.money, you can see that most of the atomic arbitrage on osmosis has been performed by three or four different accounts. And that's like millions of dollars of ARB. And those accounts, for all we know, like <laughs> two of them, three of them, they could just belong to the same team. This is something that you see even on Ethereum where you have a much more mature MEV market where usually there's like protocol dominance by searchers. There is like searchers for the most part have a protocol or a few protocols where they just beat everyone else. And so if we introduce something like PBS to Cosmos right now, our fear is that that creates that same problem, but kind of on steroids. You know, it's, it's quite expensive to run a builder. It's quite complicated. It requires a lot of sophisticated software development. You know, given the size of MEV on these chains right now, it's probably not something that like can profitably sustain a business unless you are building a huge percentage of blocks on all of these different chains. And we have pretty high confidence that there are actions that folks could take, whether it's Skip or someone else, that would give them that kind of advantage. And then you end up in a situation where most of the blocks in Cosmos are being built by one party that is difficult to audit and difficult to oversee. And that's really not like the world that we want to live in. We'd have made a much worse world if that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is like, it's known that PBS is a centralizing thing, but it, it is going to be so much worse in Cosmos if we introduce it now because there's this point that like individual chains are not that valuable. What is valuable is like the sum of many different chains. And that is going to lead to much more centralizing effects. So what we try to do is think like, okay, well, you know, we have these latent resources in Cosmos, these validators who already do align with the protocols, who are already doing a lot of both on-chain and off-chain work to support them, like they could take more responsibility for block building and we could build a more decentralized MEV supply chain. And that's one that like empowers the validators and empowers the protocol itself, as opposed to like empowering Skip or some off-chain builder, right? So that's the core idea for us. I don't know if you'd put it differently. No, I think it's a great summary. Power the protocol, not uh, individual actors. Barry, could you... Maybe give like a quick, just like TLDR for those that don't know about what PBS stands for and what it means and and sort of compare and contrast its like trade-offs and utility for Ethereum versus the app chains. Yeah, I talked about this a little bit earlier, so we might want to do some splicing or something, or I don't know how you want to structure things, but PBS stands for Proposer Builder Separation. And... The idea behind PBS is block building for a, a general purpose smart contract chain is hard. It's like NP hard to be exact. And it requires deciding what transactions to include from a much larger candidate set, figuring out how to order them and trying to like basically do this weird knapsack problem. And the PBS people will tell you, okay, like this work is so hard and so profitable that if someone got really good at it, they could run a much more profitable validator than anyone else and eventually take over the network. And so that like this process of building the block is potentially a very centralizing influence. And so instead of having the validators do the hard work, the ideas protocol or proposer builder separation gives builders the ability to suggest blocks to validators 
who then suggest them or you know propose them for inclusion in the network. Hence the proposer builder separation name. So all the validator does, all the proposer does, is they pick the highest bid and they suggest the corresponding block to the network and it's very easy for them. So the idea is like you move the centralizing force farther away from the protocol and we can kind of pretend that the whole thing is decentralized, right? The thing that we talk about internally is like the Patrick Starr meme from SpongeBob where he's like, oh, we're going to take Bikini Bottom and we're going to push it <laughs> over here. Like that's the core idea behind PBX is take the centralizing influence and just kind of like push it somewhere else. And so like when we think about this, our question is like, okay, is this mechanism like a sovereign one? Like, does it form the basis of a sovereign MEV supply chain, which we talked about before is meaning like you can have governance-driven determination of cruise MEV and governance-driven determination of what kind of MEV exists. And like our perspective, and I, I think Osmosis's perspective, but I want to speak for Dave, is like that is not a sovereign system. It's hyper-optimized for two things, to commoditize validators, to make them basically indistinguishable for another, and to transfer as much revenue as possible to the proposer of each block. Like the harm to users, users be damned, basically. And so the entire idea behind protocol-owned builders is trying to take some of the power that has been vested in unauditable off-chain ways in these builders and, and move that power and the primitives that they have into the chain and into consensus. And in that way, try to like recreate a sovereign MEV supply chain where folks like Dave and his community can actually decide, as he was saying, like where MEV revenue crews. And this is like the core objective behind POB. And I think the last the last point I want to make about this is we don't want to make POB, we want it to be a generalized solution, right? So the whole idea is like we're trying to take the concepts from ProtoRev, not the actual code or the implementation, but the core idea of having the protocol have a more active role in MEV and generalize it and make it more accessible for other app chains and create modules around it that can just be plug and play. That can kind of be just like the app chains, MEV toolkit, your fee market toolkit, your subscription toolkit, whatever it might be. And we've been very fortunate to work with Dave and Sunny and Osmosis in pioneering a lot of that stuff. And I think there's just going to be, as we were talking about before, like a big explosion of, of, I think, experiments in this direction that take place over the next year. And I think another big source of this will be the duality team, right? So they, they recently proposed this idea of like multiplicity, where they're going to like make a modified version of Tendermint, where you have an additional round of consensus, where all of the validators submit transactions to the proposer that have to be included in the block or the it fails prepare proposal. So what that means is the proposer no longer has a monopoly and that the protocol itself is being more responsible for building. So that's, you know, directionally in the same vein of protocol and builders. So we're super excited about that kind of stuff too. So there's going to be a lot of teams working on and thinking about this. And like, I have a lot of confidence that Cosmos is going to go in a direction that does not look like PBS and looks way fucking cooler. So that's, that's what POB is all about. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it's super helpful. And I guess my follow-up would be, okay, we've talked about ProtoRev, we've talked about PBS, we've talked about the, the protocol-owned builder future. Obviously, Osmosis has governance voted to approve the ProtoRev module, and it's, the anticipation is that the 
fees generated by the module go into this, as you said, community treasury module, again, controlled by token holders. That might look a little different with the protocol element builders, but directionally will probably be quite similar. This might be a question for Dave, like what are the types of things that that treasury could be used for? And what do you think if it was up, like, yeah, where would you like to see some of the proceeds? To be honest, like, I, I don't think I have, I this is underexplored territory for all of crypto. So I think maybe I can list out some things I think are very cool that have, like, been, that have had work started on it. So in Ohm, like, you know, lots of things with Ohm that were, like, pretty, very scammy. But there's this, like, paper by True and all that really hints that there's something actually very interesting going on about how Ohm incentives are done that let it be, like, targeting dampening volatility of the coin, which I thought was interesting. And I think you enable a lot more classes of incentives like actions once you start collecting more diverse assets. But also another thing that was happening in Omeland was that they were claiming, in their case, it was a false claim, but that you have some minimum protocol value due to this non-native assets the protocol owns, where today we often treat community pools or like DAO treasuries as like having the native asset has real value which is not quite right. The native asset is more like unallocated shares, but then non-native and then non-native assets that are like uncorrelated are like kind of real value in these. And this becomes, as you know, the protocols get more non-native things, this becomes more accurate. Then I also think it's exciting for the community pool can start trying to make effects that it wants to see happen. So like, Funding research or funding DAOs. Today, all these DAOs are funded purely in Osmo, but now can start funding it in more diverse assets. Another thing is they can start doing like public goods funding, which is I think would be very exciting of like either something that feels credibly neutral, like Gitcoin matching, or if there's some cause area that's very clearly like of deep importance to osmosis directly, just fund that as it sees, as, as it wants to. Something else that's interesting is that I think it's useful for at least staking tokens of projects Osmosis has like deep connections to, like to be able to express this down to users as well. Something that'd be kind of cool is suppose the community pool has like a million chain A token. Well, what if if you owned maybe one percent of Osmo staked Osmo, maybe you can vote with one percent of chain A token on any chain A governance proposal. Let us have this most community pool have like governance power or be a, a real governance actor in other ecosystems. Yeah, that last point is something I think we've started to see on some ETH protocols. It's been something the compound community has talked about for a while. They obviously crew fees in a bunch of different tokens. And for something like Uniswap, they can decide as a community, okay, how do we actually set up a system where we can vote and express our view and probably helps compound over time if they're able to do that because they're able to vote and express their opinion for for what's best for compounds users. So I think, yeah, the osmosis community is is quite passionate. And given how how much drama there is in Cosmos governance, I, I think this could be a pretty exciting and interesting thing to see develop, just like how the osmosis community handles holding a bunch of other other tokens. So yeah, excited for that. Oh, it's really cool. I actually didn't realize this is happening in Compound today. I don't know if it's live. I know there's some protocols like Index Co-op that will vote as a DAO on other DAO governance proposals, but I don't think at scale it's really something that has taken off in the major DeFi protocols, to be honest. Huh. I think it also becomes interesting as like a alternative to liquid staking, or in some sense, like 
how do these protocols choose the validator sets to delegate to in case, cases that matters in, or in this like Cosmos case where everyone has validators? Yeah, I was going to ask, like, is there some, there's no like standard right now way where like a protocol could decide, hey, we're going to validate to be, or we're going to delegate to these people like as a, as a governance community. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, how do you choose the set and you're waiting amongst the set? Given how much drama there's been around foundation delegations, I'm sure this will be a fun, easy <laughs> discussion. <laughs> I'm sure it will be very easy for everybody to agree. <laughs> well, I guess there is the option of just delegate to every single valve on the other chain. Yeah, I mean, even that's going to piss people off, though. You'll never make anyone happy. This is why I love my job, because all we have to do is help you guys get the money, and then you guys have to do the hard thing, just figure out how to use it. Uh, Osmosis governance has to do the hard thing. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> Derek, I just wanted to ask you like, what you thought would be cool to do with it, just since you're such a big part of the community. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there's been a few different ideas thrown around. Like, like anytime you have any fees accruing to a treasury, people... I would say one end of the spectrum, they want things like upgrade the token staking model or add fees to stakers or implement like a VE staking model and sort of revise the tokenomics. I think on the other end of the spectrum, you have the view of don't use the proceeds at all, just sort of let it grow and accrue and build up this massive reserve over time so that in over the long run, you can pay the developers, pay new people. Maybe if the the core team runs out of funding, you can fund the core team. Like you look at something like Aave, Aave's quite old for DeFi protocol. It's been around for four or five years. Like Aave, the company has like they raised some money. They had some a bunch of people there. They're at, I think I believe their headcount's like almost a hundred now, maybe less in this market. But yeah, like the Aave company is like had to ask the DAO for funding to continue its operations and, and keep it going. And I think that's something that will happen a lot more with with any DeFi protocol that has different software development companies building it for it. Because again, these are not like it's a different scenario from a private startup that can raise continuous rounds of dilutive financing from existing or new investors. Like once there's a token, once there's a protocol and there's allocation split up, like, it's difficult. It's not impossible, but it's difficult to just, like, <laughs> like create new tokens out of thin air and, and issue them, right? So if you're going to be earning any kind of fees and accruing a treasury, like, you might not be a lot of money, like, in the interim, and it might not matter. But after a few years, like, if you want to create a sustainable ecosystem, like, I think that's really the the mentality that, again, I would presume is is most important. I think, yeah. So, and, and I think in between those two views of like burn these tokens or use them to increase yield versus just let it accrue, there's a lot of stuff between that. That's a big design space. Like again, just funding different initiatives, funding developers, funding grants. I think there's a, again big design space. But to me, the north star really is like how do we build up a large treasury to make sure that people like working full-time on these ecosystems can continue to be incentivized, really. Like, I think that's what what ultimately matters. Everything else is kind of just like looking at it from like a really short-term perspective. Nice. Yeah, no, I think that's a 
think that's a good take. One like completely bananas side question that I wanted to ask, probably you mostly, Derek, but both of you is like, would you ever think about using or like proposing to use any of the treasury for like buying TradFi assets at all? So like now that interest rates are really high, like US treasuries are nice. And like one thing, one thing I've thought about is like most governance communities, especially like places like Osmosis and, and, and elsewhere have massive crypto bags, obviously, but don't have anything that tethers them to traditional finance or hedges them at all in case that things things get worse. But do you think like the Osmosis community would, would go for something like that? Like putting a little bit of it into some like very safe TradFi thing, it's like a downside hedge? Or is that is that like antithetical? Assuming legality, right? Like assuming it could be. <laughs> I think like theoretically, there's a lot of reasons protocols should do this, right? Like again, if you're looking at a, a traditional startup with interest rates so high, could make a lot of sense to, yeah, put some of the, the cash you have in the bank in, in treasuries, right? If it's a safe product that you feel good about, it's and and it's not some crazy structure, I think there's a lot of benefits to doing that. It increases your runway, it, it gives you it allows you to earn some some cash. I think from a crypto protocols perspective, it's a little more nuanced than that, just because it's not, at least right now, it's not that simple to get access to these traditional products, right? Like you look at something like MakerDAO and their journey trying to get sort of more exposure to real world assets and real world yields. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's taken them, I think, an enormous amount of time to to even get access to, to treasuries, right? Multiple proposals, like multiple months, if not years of, of work. So, and I think there's some new protocols like Ondo that are building products to provide on-chain access to these kinds of yields. But again, it's not, you're not necessarily getting the exact same thing. Like there's some incremental levels of risk that you're taking by, by using these new products. So I think it's an interesting idea and over a long enough time frame, I think it, it does make sense. But like, like if, if someone wanted to actually like, let's say Osmosis or, or whatever, Uniswap or, or Compound had like $50 million in it of stable coins, like practically speaking, it's pretty difficult today to do it. But I think, yeah, over a long enough time frame, these barriers will collapse and it makes, at least for me, it makes, I think there's a lot of pros to it. Dave, it's probably a question for you. How do you see how do you see mesh security impacting, I think, all of this stuff we're talking about? MEV, validators, searchers, like there's a few interesting takes on this. Curious what, what you guys, how you guys feel. Yeah. So I guess mesh security is increasing the security of every chain by letting validators or like letting it not just be Osmos staked on Osmosis, but say Atom or ETH also being staked to help secure it. So in case of any malicious activity, it's Osmo, ETH, and Atom that's burned, not just Osmo. Malicious being like consensus level malicious. I'm not sure if it's going to have a big impact on searchers, though I guess maybe hitting on Barry's point earlier of the unintended consequences of three strike policies. I wonder if we get something similar. Today, a lot of the claim for why do people not try consensus level attacks on any app chain 
is one, they don't care enough, just maybe part of it, or it's not worth enough. The second is that you'd actually hurt your own tokens. Like every Solana or ETH validator holds a lot of ETH. So if they didn't attack on the chain, yeah, sure, they get some easy profit or they get some profit short term, but then all of their soul or ETH holdings go massively down once it's like, once it's discovered. Or same things answer Bitcoin as well, I guess. And now I, I hadn't thought of this much at all, but this does become a less strong of a claim in mesh security where the tokens you use to get consensus power isn't just the native coin, it's also these other ones. So I do wonder if that could make these consensus level attacks more concerning. Though, first pass, I don't think, I'm not particularly worried about this because I think one of the elements of mesh security that's well designed is bounding the amount of consensus power any different token can get and giving advantage to the native one. But yeah, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on this? I, I actually have not thought about the, this as a problem statement much. It's an interesting question. I guess like there's one line of thought that goes something like, I think, yeah, like the potential concerns that you highlight are real. And it's like, if mesh security takes off and comes really successful, it could concentrate power among even more among, let's say, top validators that are present in multiple ecosystems and as opposed to just one. So yeah, I think, again, I'm not quite sure how that affects like MEV and and the end user necessarily, but let's say yields increase even more for stakers using these validators i think it, it could just have like interesting unintended consequences yeah i don't really have strong thoughts either to be honest yeah i mean i do think that we've as crypto or proof of stake systems to hold under allocated tension towards ensuring the validator sets are actually centralized like current incentive mechanisms treat all stake as equivalent basically which seems bad like proof of stake algorithms should want decentralization if there's like Three validators, one up, two at 49%, one at 2%. I actually want to give the 2% validator more incentives so they accrue more power and it's, the system becomes more decentralized. And now, now you have some issues of simple resistance for how do you make that actually happen at the operator level. But I think that's going to be something important. Like, I guess maybe also with protocols owning staking tokens, I wonder if there's some social norm that can be established or like ad hoc policies that can give make it advantageous for them to choose staking sets that are more decentralized or perhaps decorrelated from their own. Yeah, I think like all of this is so early that it's really hard to see how it's going to play out. (laughs) But you go in a bunch of different directions. And I think the core thing is going to be, I think, ensuring that early experiments with mesh security are like right-sized given the initial risks. And that like chains grow dependence on it over time as we get more confidence in the mechanisms. But the dream that like we have for it at least is Cosmos has this like big public goods problem and incentive alignment problem that other ecosystems don't have because they have like one maxi token that everybody holds and that like everybody's efforts pump directly or indirectly, right? So like, obviously, the Ethereum community has ETH, and everybody has in Ethereum has an ETH bag or depends on ETH security in some way and has an indirect ETH bag. And like, all of that adds up to them having a very strong culture around public goods and protocol development and developer tooling and 
doing things that like turn the network effect wheels for everyone as opposed to just for individual chains or part of the ecosystem and like cosmos doesn't have that token from our perspective and so different teams have massively different incentives when it comes to their own token that they've issued versus osmo versus adam which i think are both like the closest things to this and what we see is a lot of teams this like biases where they spend their time obviously and we think about this a lot because skip is like an interchain team right we work with chains on the hub we work with chains that are not on the hub like osmosis we work with chains that have you know really strong kind of venture-backed teams at their core, like Injective, as well as completely community-driven teams like Juno and everything in between. And so we are like very highly aligned with just trying to like solve the interchain problems as opposed to trying to solve like any individual problem and like potentially mesh security or ideas like the allocator, anything that can help like the community behind a chain like Osmosis get direct exposure to the success of a bunch of other chains, I think is a step in the direction of creating like effectively this maxi token, right? Even though it's not literally one token in this case, but it's kind of like you have an index and that index represents all of Cosmos. And then we can all hopefully work together better to pump the value of that index. I don't know if that made any sense, but like mesh security for unitarian cosmos future <laughs> yeah i mean I, I think it's an interesting perspective and, and certainly makes sense and yeah we'll be interesting to see with over the coming months coming years how, how things develop again i think cosmos one of the reasons i find it so interesting is because specifically because of the dynamic that there is no one native token that everyone agrees upon right like that's obviously that has trade-offs that has pros and cons but what it does mean is that there's a lot of interesting experiments that can be run and that chains can can decide on and as a way to try to get further along on reaching that goal. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Awesome. Cool. Well, Barry, Dave, really appreciate you guys coming on today. I think a lot of good content on, on a lot of topics, MEV, some of the osmosis specific proposals, usage of treasury funds and and a few other things. So really appreciate you guys coming on. Awesome. Thanks for having us. I, that was really fun. Yeah. I always like talking to you guys. <laughs>